This episode of the Film Stage Show is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there is always something new to discover. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected. It's like your own personal film festival streaming anytime, anywhere. You can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash Filmstage. That's M-U-B-I.com slash Filmstage for a whole month of great cinema for free. Welcome to another episode of the Film Stage Show. Brian J. Roan hates Steven Spielberg, so he couldn't make it tonight. But uh, <laughs> filling in for him, it's me, Connor O'Donnell, from the B-Side, assuming hosting duties, joined by Bill Graham and Robin Ooh. Barr. How are you guys? Woohoo! Um, we believe in the power of cinema or some shit. And model trains. And dollhouses. <laughs> Uh, we are going to be reviewing Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans, if you couldn't tell, which is now available uh, to see in movie theaters for I don't know how much longer we'll see. It's probably going to be streaming, uh, you know, maybe within the month. Uh, but here to help us do that is a film critic who writes for The New York Times and co-host of the podcast Unspooled, the wonderful Amy Nicholson. Uh, hello, everybody. It's great to be here. <laughs> hello, Amy. How are you? Thank you for uh, thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. I can't wait to talk about cinema and dreams and trains and people who eat with plastic forks. And brisket and all all, <laughs> all sorts of things are, are going to pop up here. Um, but, uh, but before we get into that, just some quick housekeeping. Uh, be sure to give us a follow on Twitter at The Film Stage Show or shoot us an email uh, at podcast at thefilmstage.com. And uh, you can become patrons of this podcast by visiting patreon.com slash the film stage show for as little as $1 an episode. You can get access to our private Slack channel and a first crack at our raffles and other fun stuff. Uh, other fun stuff like people bullying me for not liking anything. Uh, well, well I'll, I'll, bully, I'll bully you a bunch in a second, Robin. We'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> As usual, this episode of the Film Stage Show is brought to you by Movie, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from iconic directors to emerging auteurs. There is always something new to discover. With Movie, each and every film is hand selected. It's like your own personal film festival streaming anytime, anywhere. Uh, currently on Movie, you can catch Peter Bogdanovich's The Cat's Meow. You guys seen that movie? Yeah, yeah, I actually yeah. just watched that really I, recently. I dig, I dig that movie quite a bit. Uh, you have, uh, it's, uh, you know old uh hollywood sort of uh scandalous uh dealings involving william randolph hearst and marion davies you get kirsten dunce's marion davies which is a super kind of i think underrated performance by her i watched it last year when she was getting all the love for mm -hmm. uh power of the dog and i kind of uh was reminded of that movie but uh you can jennifer tilly you can't get any better also great yeah it's got uh carrie elwes i believe is in it as well who mm -hmm. i feel like for a while was hollywood Hollywood's resident, like, do we need someone on a crew <laughs> that feels old? Because he shows up in like Shadow of the Vampire uh, as like the DP. And uh, anyway, he just has that look about him. You can also <laughs> on movie find Godard's Hail Mary from 1985. Uh, it was roundly condemned by the Vatican for its risky retelling of the Virgin Mary's story. Uh, and it's a highlight of his underrated 80s period. So you can all check that out on movie. But with that out of the way, we're going to dive in 
to uh, I, I believe uh, movies are also dreams like movies. And uh, oh, this boy. movie, which is a dream, uh, is called The Fablemans. It's uh, an autobiographical film from Steven Spielberg uh, about a young boy growing up in post-World War II Arizona, uh, Sammy Fableman, who aspires to become a filmmaker as he reaches adolescence, but soon discovers a shattering family secret and explores how the power of films can help him see the truth. And before we dive in, I'll let you listen to a little bit of the trailer right here. Movies are dreams. That you never forget. Sammy? And there it is. We've heard it yet again, straight from the horse's mouth. They're dreams, people, in case you didn't know. Um, I guess just overall thoughts, Fablemans. Amy, our wonderful guest, we'll start with you. Oh, yeah. Overall thoughts. Well, can I just come out and say the the maybe uh, bold <laughs> negative line first? I'm not sure anybody would care about this movie if we didn't know it was about Steven Spielberg. <laughs> if it was just Dango. about some guy named Sammy who loves the movies. Mm-hmm. I'm not alone in saying that. Oh, thank God. I was a little bit nervous. No, I, don't, no. I don't think you are, but I have a bone to pick with that and we'll get to it. But but uh, continue. <laughs> well, I mean... I feel like knowing that this that that this young kid is going to grow up to be Steven Spielberg is really one of the only things that gives this movie a lot of its dramatic interest. You know, it's sort of like mm-hmm. understanding the worms inside the head of the guy who is basically the filmmaker who has shaped our entire lives mm-hmm. as cinema people of our age and generation. Because, I mean, I, I, maybe just to set the table for all of us to talk about this, one of the things I think is fascinating about Steven Spielberg, just as a director walking this earth, is that I think if you're under 50 years old, we've really only grown up in a Hollywood that has been shaped by pretty much this one man and then other people <laughs> liking what he's doing and then riffing off of it. Sure. Studios green lighting other films because they remind people of what Steven Spielberg is making tons of money on. Certainly on you a know, large scale level at the very least, like on a, exactly. in terms of like bigger uh, budget fare. Yeah, definitely. A thousand percent. And so like this one man and his love of nostalgia and families and happiness and, you know, childhood tragedies that linger forever and divorces that wind up in all of his movies this one man and all of his neuroses have kind of set the template for the bulk of what is considered popular cinema in our entire lifetime which is maybe the only reason why i think it's interesting to go inside of his head because i would say the thing that i've always wondered about spielberg is is this guy really deeply interesting like does he have interesting things to say does he have an interesting childhood or is he just a guy who grew up obsessed with movies regurgitates movies love cinema you know is, is is he a person who lives only in movies or does he have a full rich life of his own as a child? And I would say having watched this, the answer is no. <laughs> I don't right. think, no, I don't think he's actually a deeply interesting person. And so it's fascinating to me that it's his brain that is what we all are trapped inside of. But I don't think that he... Uh... 
pretends to be or wants to be necessarily seen as an inter- interesting person in and of himself because he wants to be the person, I mean, his character wants to be the person that is showing other people. Um, like, I don't think he purports to be some great intellectual or some some great poet in some ways, but he does want to show off other people's lives in the film itself, which is obviously extremely, uh, you know, self-reflexive and, and all of that. Um, because Sammy is not the most interesting person on the screen by far. And I think Spielberg knows that. Yeah, I think just for your overall thoughts, Robin, I mean, did this generally work for you or not so much? Oh, no, not at all. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's it's not, I mean, my husband and I were making fun of it quite a bit because we just kept calling it like the power of dreams or something. Sure, like sure. my husband would like make this noise like, <laughs> yeah like pretending to be a, a camera and like and whimpering and i'm terrible at it he does it much better and so we, the whole like month before the movie we just kept you know like we wouldn't even say the name of the movie the fablemans we just kept making that noise to each other um and making fun of it and and i completely agree with you amy um you know it's it's uh, kind of hard to to find the crux of what this movie is because it's like five different movies in one you know you have the uh, the divorce storyline, which to me was the one that worked the best. Um, you have the, the moving like that, you know, is, is semi-interesting to me as somebody who moved around a lot, although not really for the, the privileged reasons that they do, because his father is this like incredible engineer who just keeps getting recruited by all these big companies. Mm-hmm. Um, you have the anti-Semitism movie, which kind of comes like, I don't know, in the last third, the last quarter. And it's just kind of like, okay, let's get through this. Like get him to fucking film school already. It- there's a geographic and we can kind of talk a little bit more about that when we kind of dive through, but like there is also a geographic sort of reason for that. Right. Cause like the first yeah. part of the movie is in Arizona, <laughs> which at the time is a lot more of a melting pot. So like, even if people, you know, didn't know other Jewish people. They also, it was also probably the first time they knew people who were like Latino, you know, or something, you know what I mean? Like there, there's like, I think a little bit more of a cultural melting pot going on yeah, in that I mean, it's area clear at that the time that it's not until he gets entered, yeah. to that later part of the movie and that later part of his life that he was like, Oh, people like feel this way about, you know, uh, about Jewish people. Yeah, It's not coming out of left field. I yeah. mean, I, under, I understand why it happens this way, but just like the way he constructs it is so, it's just so linear. Um, Mm. and it's, it's like, this is not actually your biography. Like, you know, you can sort of shape this movie to be a narrative that, uh, works well for the overarching story. And it's not necessarily just like, and then this happened and then this happened Mm. and that, and that's what it kind of feels like. Um, I don't know. It's a movie I probably should like more as, a child that loved to play with miniatures. Um, sure. and it's, it's kind of funny. And I, I, the reason I say this is because it's funny that men are deemed to be, you know, these like amazing filmmakers and creators and all of that. And only they can put these stories together when young girls are basically directors starting from, you know, age two or three, when they play with Barbies. And I mean, mm. I don't mean to gender essentialize, but like, that's essentially it. Like when you're, playing your Barbie, Barbie house, your doll house, with like any, you're kind, of, with any kind of toy, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But you know, 
something about this movie is like, oh, they're putting the trains together. And, you know, it's like, I fundamentally get that. I fundamentally understand that when you're a child creating these storylines and physically putting together the, you know, an imaginary world with your toys, like you are Mm. a director. It's just kind of like, okay, but you know, what, what's so special about what you're doing? And, and I think the argument is that because he was so drawn to recording these things well before we all had an iPhone or we even had like a, I don't know, like a camcorder and, or anything, you know, because he was so interested in that technology, you know, that, I think that's where he's saying that he was, um, an innovator to some degree. So it was okay, far, cool. yeah, it was far less accessible too. So there's something when you put it in that context, there's a, something a little more special about it because not everybody was, you know, getting a Mansfield, uh, you know, eight millimeter edit or 16 millimeter editing bay or whatever it is to, to start cutting things together. Um, exactly. At the, at the but you know, there are other movies like that make that aspect a little bit more interesting. Like, mm. Uh, my husband and I recently watched all the beauty and the bloodshed. And I think what Nan Golden does, you know, what, what the movie does rather is really showcase how Nan Golden uh, showcased her life way before that became like Duriger. Mm. Um, you know, like now we can open up our phones and take pictures of, you know, just like our everyday lives and put it in our story. And we're like, you know, documenters or whatever. And, and she was doing that, you know, 40 years before anybody thought of something like that. And I think maybe that's the argument of, of this movie is that the interest in technology is um, what made Spielberg stand out, but something like all All the beauty and the bloodshed, or even um, there's another movie that does this pretty recently that kind of showcased how, Oh, um, Val. I don't know if anybody's seen the Val Kilmer documentary. Yeah. Val's great. Yeah. That's another movie that really shows like, okay, like here's, here are people that took this seriously way before it was convenient to do so. Mm. And uh, maybe I wish Philemon's was a little more, uh, I don't know, showing the the technological side of filmmaking. I guess it does that a lot. Well, <laughs> Another it, thread to add in. <laughs> it's funny, right? Because this movie kind of feels like Steven Spielberg showing the recipe of how you make a Steven Spielberg, at least mm-hmm. in his, you know, his estimation of it. It's like to make one Steven Spielberg, you mix one half dad who's an engineer, mm. one half <laughs> yeah. mom who's an artist, and you swirl these two things and you get somebody who can be a problem solver, who can, you know, come up with things like dust pyrotechnics and figuring mm-hmm. out how to make things explode and Pin, how to fake special effects. Pinholes for gunshots and all that yeah. stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Recycling your dead kids from one scene to another, which is a real thing <laughs> that he did. That's like, I, I've, um, his like, they really do a good job kind of duplicating his first film, which, you know, and like how he innovated on his own kind of figuring out how to do these like special effect techniques without Mm -hmm. having much help, you know, without having like a subscription to Fangoria or whatever at the time. (laughs) And and I think that's all funny. Then it's like, and then here's what you do after that. Then you get in like a spritz of tragedy. And when you feel pain, then you start shifting from, you know, figuring out the techniques of a scene to figuring out the emotions and how to, how to add emotion to your actors, how to make Angelo cry when Angelo is playing. I do love that scene. I like, adore the way that that scene plays out. And I know we haven't really gotten to like deep into the detail of spoilers yet, but that scene, I just had me cackling, but, uh, 
but yeah, that was actually a really good scene. I like that kid who played Angelo. <laughs> he, he did a great job. He did a great job. Sorry, continue. I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh no, but it's just that. But it, but I guess to me, what I found frustrating is like how in this, when he gives away the recipe to what is a Steven Spielberg, it just becomes even more obvious that so many of his films are just made of the same ingredients. You know, like. Mm-hmm. He, it's no startling fact to point out that like Steven Spielberg films have always had a huge thing about divorce, divorced dads, you yeah, know, with sure. Close Encounters, E.T., War of the Worlds. Nostalgia you know. for that idyllic childhood of riding on your bikes with your buddies. Yeah, exactly. It's so here it is being like, and here is the er dad. Here is the er breakup. Here is yeah. here is where all of those other stories came from. It's sort of like seeing the first myth after watching all of the secondary like spinoff myths, it's like you grew up on Shrek and then you finally got to read, you know, the, the original versions of Sleeping Beauty. That's such, <laughs> I just don't know what to do with you comparing this movie to Shrek. I, I don't know. <laughs> I guess um, worse. I was saying E.T. was yeah, Shrek right, and right. this is Sleeping Beauty, which I don't no, think no, I, I don't believe at all. I don't even know what to do but... with you comparing E.T. to Shrek. Sorry. <laughs> um, but, you know, actually Shrek is a very, very Jewish story. Like, if you're going to make that thread, I'm pretty sure Shrek just means like something in Yiddish as well, like to frighten or something. Somebody but Google anyway. it. I uh, actually looked this up six months ago and I'm embarrassed I don't remember. I read the original Shrek because we did an episode on Shrek on yes, school and I went Yiddish and like read terror. the OG book. <laughs> uh-huh. The book is really good. I highly recommend it for like older children, you know, people who are looking for like funny books for kids like Shrek, the book um by i forget his name steig or something he is not the book is nothing like the movie no. uh it's totally weird and disturbing it doesn't and have fun. mike myers it doesn't have no. matrix and, references in it well andy is much uglier too like the og shrek yes. is even goofier looking yeah, yeah. he's like in my memory he's like, like warty and kinda. pimply yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Bill, we okay. haven't D- forgot. A- <laughs> we haven't forgotten about you please please tell us your your overarching thoughts on the fabies uh, uh, I, I I promise I will not bring up Shrek uh, ever again. Um, uh, I really quite enjoyed this. I, I do agree with Amy in that if this film wasn't about Steven Spielberg's life, if this was just a film, I'm not sure that this is very successful. I also don't know why, you know, I'm sure he's been on the... Uh, on the award season trail and stuff like that. Um, and I'm sure someone is going to ask him why it's not just called the Spielbergs. Cause that would just be a much easier to market and sell film. Um, but you know, because I, it's not about the Spielbergs. It's well, about uh, okay. his I mean, it is m- imagination. It is about the Spielberg. Mm. I see the thing. Sorry, Bill, continue. I I, I want you yeah. to finish your thoughts because I, 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 I have I'll opinions. get this out quick. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'll, I'll get this out quick. Uh, unlike Robin's uh, brief thoughts, I'll I promise to make these brief. Um, <laughs> you bitch. Uh, <laughs> um, so I really quite enjoyed this film. Uh, I have a thing where basically, if you run past two hours, uh, and yeah, my rough kind of like when i start like looking at my watch is about 215 to 220 um if you run past that 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 mark i start kind of docking you points if i don't just come out of the film just blown away and i think the last 30 to 40 minutes of this film really just kind of hit it out of the park for me i agree um 
And so I feel like me and my wife, we were driving home and she immediately was just like, I loved it. And I, I like, I don't, I'm not sure where this will end up in my top 10 in the end of the year, but it's probably going to be pretty high. I really quite enjoyed this film. I have some, some quibbles. I have some, some issues here and there. Uh, but for the most part, I think this is just really, really exceptionally acted um i think the kid that plays a young spielberg Gabriel is LaBelle. fantastic yeah. yes and um you know michelle williams is uh, you know always great on screen and so is paul dano um i think that relationship with you know a key turn by seth rogan is just so interesting mm-hmm. and so so like just juicy in so many different ways um and yeah i, I just really enjoyed the the myth making here and uh seeing you know maybe one of our greatest directors like explore this stuff out out in the open like this you know it's eventually going to be on like you know 2000 screens which is just i'm sure I, I can't imagine what that feels like for him and you know he's not the first filmmaker to kind of be or make a film about his kind of upbringing but i feel like this one is one of the few recently where it's literally about like his upbringing uh, and his fascination with film versus something like Roma, which kind of takes a detour and, and follows, you know, the, the, the nanny i'm trying to remember who she was the maid. Uh, she was the, a housekeeper she, yeah. maid yeah, yeah housekeeper yeah so you know um we've seen other filmmakers do similar stuff but not not quite to this uh level i don't think yeah i i basically agree now to be fair i think robin and amy every nothing i think you said is necessarily incorrect i think part of it is oh thank you no no no. I, 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 again not that you need my permission it's just a i i understand no, the on. viewpoint right um which is to say like i and I, I i'm now presuming bill is too like i am the mark for this movie right like <laughs> I, which and like so i'll happily admit that that like it feels like I'm just in right in the Venn diagram of that demographic and it did all the things I wanted it to do. And I reacted the way that it wanted to me, me to react. Right. So I'll just for sure caveat that that said the complaint that like, if it wasn't Steven Spielberg, the movie wasn't, wouldn't matter. Or if Steven Spielberg wasn't Steven Spielberg, the movie wouldn't matter. It's like, well, but he is, and he made this mm-hmm. movie, and that's sure. the context that, yep. like, the context that this movie exists in. You can't really remove it from it, right? Like, it's not. It it's so ingrained, and like you said, Amy. Like, obviously, anybody who's grown up watching his movies knows that, like, things like the divorce and stuff like that pervade his movies so much. I think. I think this movie is counting on you going in with that knowledge, as opposed to educating you on it, right? And I think now, granted, that's a hell of a caveat to a movie. I understand. But I think the the other part of it, given that, you know, like you said, Robin, there is sort of a a a linear but sort of detached flow to this movie. Right. It's almost like a series of vignettes. 
yes, that, that yeah. carry you through like the stages of which is not, you know, it's it's not dissimilar. I, I saw a couple people say this on Twitter when the movie came out. This is before I saw it, but people saying like it's funny to think that, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson and Steven Spielberg are good friends, and yet licorice pizza is the thing that seemingly maybe most influenced the Fablemans, right? Like it just and I mm-hmm. I having now seen the movie, I understand that because it's just this they have a very similar kind of structure to them, this kind of loose, free-flowing nature that gets you from one place to the next. I do think though, the the one, this is the worst marketed movie I've seen all year. Like uh, to be and granted, to be fair to the folks at Amblin and Universal who cut the trailers, I don't know how else you market it, but yeah, but I don't actually think this movie is at its forefront a movie about the power of movies. I think that is a very like ancillary thing. And I think what this really is, is like, hey, here's this like trauma that I suffered as a kid and this thing that has influenced my entire life and everything. And I've literally just resorted to this specific art form as a way of retelling it in hopes of finding closure. Right. And I think like you could, you could fictionalize this movie and make it about a great painter or something like that and still center it on the central divorce and deteriorating relationship of his two parental figures and it could still be just as good of a movie like in its own way. Um, Cause I think the thing that that's the lifeblood, like the Paul Dano, Michelle Williams engine is the thing that I think drives this whole movie. Right. Agreed. And I think the, there is, you know, so just on a narrative level as a movie goer, that's what you have to latch on to, right? On top of that, as a, like I said, as like the mark for the movie, I then find myself being like, oh yeah, there's like the ending of Close Encounters and there's like, you know, there's like all these little things that you just see that you're like, oh, that's where that fucking thing came from, right? Like, and I think that's part of the joy of this movie. It, it, I, I will say with the obvious, with you know, with an understanding that maybe the, you know, the audience are fans of Steven Spielberg's movies, right? Um, and I just thought that I, you know, I don't know. The whole experience to me was kind of this. I mean, it's a movie about your parents becoming people. And for me mm-hmm. watching this movie, it felt like that feeling when your parents become people. Like this, like person who had commanded so much of my attention as a young moviegoer suddenly avenues kind of popped open that I was like oh yeah okay like a little bit more of it makes a little bit more sense right um Mm -hmm. so anyway that's my very long-winded way of saying I really loved this movie so um I do think I mean I think we should get into spoilers because I do think the the central kind of crux of the relationship in this movie is crucial um so Mm -hmm. dear listener i'll just say if you haven't seen it yet obviously come back and revisit after you have um because i do think and this is where i'll spoil it but i do think like the seth rogan of it all is so crucial to what makes this movie fascinating to me i i i want to i want to kind of lob something at y'all that i just kind of thought up a little bit and you know 
I think what's interesting about this film is that it makes no bones about the fact that he potentially witnessed or, you know, videographed or whatever you want to call it, uh, his mom potentially having an affair with another man. I, not and, even potentially, like an emo- certainly an emotional affair, right? Sure. Like, yes, you know. yes. And, and, you know, we don't know how physical it is. And, and, you know, Michelle Williams's character goes to great lengths to basically say, you know, it's not as bad as you probably think it is, um, which is like, okay, but you're talking to what, like a 16 year old boy, like, <laughs> what what do you think i think you know uh but i think what's what's really interesting to me is that that and it it almost did that could have been the end of steven spielberg as a director as a filmmaker as anyone involved in the film business whatever it may be right and it and it did for a little bit at least that's what this film kind of you know, shows us is that it kind of broke him a little bit. And I, like, frankly, I wouldn't blame him. Like what a, what a traumatic event to witness and then have to like cut out of your little, you know, campfire, uh, movie that you made for your mom who's you know, mourning the death of her, her mother and, it's just like holy shit what a what a period and what a moment to have witnessed and then for him to come back and like you know and he's i think he's publicly said that he doesn't do therapy he makes movies or something along those lines you know i I may be butchering that uh but basically he he doesn't really do therapy and I feel like he gets a lot of catharsis out of making movies and having control and doing all that stuff, which is funny because, like I said, you know, this very well could have been also the, you know, the exact opposite. And we're witnessing someone else's life. You know, we don't we don't celebrate Steven Spielberg as the filmmaker that we know him as now. I mean, maybe he should do therapy. <laughs> like to be yeah. honest i mean yeah. maybe he should because i think maybe he'd have a little bit more to say about what is interesting to him you know like maybe i think there's like another layer or two to scratch underneath this that would have been fascinating to find out i mean what i think is interesting about what you're saying about the power of the camera here is that he i feel like this film is saying all of these clues about my mother and seth rogan i'm just gonna call benny seth rogan yeah that's sure, okay. yeah. sure yeah, yeah. 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 that's fine we were watching all of them the whole time, you know, yeah. and that there's a difference between your eyes and the camera and that like mm-hmm. the, that the camera is a pair of eyes that's even more powerful than, you know, that there's a difference between looking and observing. Mm. And I think that's an interesting point that he's making with the camera scenes. And one of the questions I had, and I'd be curious to, to hear from you guys if if you know the answer to this, you know, there's this whole scene later on where he's like thinking about giving up being a filmmaker. He runs into Seth Rogen at the camera store. He's pawning his camera. Seth Rogen hands him a camera. They have this whole back and forth. And he seems to insist that he's never going to use that camera. And as far as I could tell, I think he doesn't, right? Like when he's when he takes up filmmaking again, he's using his girlfriend's father's camera. Yeah, Does he really just so. sort of issue like a permanent fatwa against 
that camera that's as beautiful good, as it was yeah that's a good point i mean i maybe yeah who, who's to say what happens in the things with the things that he makes you know obviously later on in life if he but but the with the jump that it makes in the latter half of the movie you would assume that he's at least made it to a point where he's making things with other people's cameras right he's no longer using like his own little camera at that point so that's a really great point like does he literally have you know there's that sort of little power play on the street right where rogan you know yeah rogan with tries the money to in the back and forth yeah. yeah yeah and then and 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 it's this kind of you think he just paid for or try at least tried to pay for the camera um as a means of like i'm just gonna buy this so that you didn't give it to me and then i'm gonna put it in a closet and we're never gonna talk about this <laughs> again um but it connects to my favorite part of Spielberg, mm. the part that is like seen, I think, in this movie in glimpses and that I would almost want more of a movie about, mm. which is that Spielberg can be kind of a petty bitch. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. You yeah. Know, like very clearly, I think one of the greatest documentary uh evidences of the Spielberg is a petty bitch is that video, of course, where he is expecting to be nominated for an Oscar for Jaws. Yeah. And he's like Fellini. roaming around his like house with Fellini. his friends. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Being, I think, a hilarious petty bitch. Yeah. And I, I like that version of Spielberg. And he's like young. It, you know, he's like a up. young hotshot filmmaker, right? Like yeah. it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It shakes up the kind of, you know, bittersweet, nostalgic saccharin Spielberg that has sort of been the de facto, if he was a perfume, that's the major note. Sure. Mm-hmm. Sure. And sure. his pettiness sure. gives it spice. And so my favorite moments in this movie are those little glimpses of, no, I'm going to be so petty on this. I'm going to stick down. I'm going to have my dad tell me that I need to do something more useful in my life than movies, just so everybody watching this can be like, yeah, get it, dad. You don't understand. (laughs) I think you get that a lot in the, uh, you know, in the like the final portion of the movie um, before the before the Los Angeles portion, but the final like prom sequence and the hallway, like I think that whole sequence, you get a lot of that because there's this there's clearly like an intent behind everything he's doing um, in cutting that movie together. Like he makes I forget mm. the name of the little mousy bully. Uh, um, o- Oaks Fegley, my, my right, boy no. from Pete's Dragon, just dragged on I was trying to think of the uh, the character's name, but yeah. He, oh, yeah. The character's names are Logan and Chad because it kind yes. of feels like he came up with this from a Reddit thread. <laughs> no one was named Logan in like 1960. No, no. They, they were not named Logan and Chad. And from what I have you read any of like his high school classmates? ratting him out a little bit about this movie no no go on okay go on because there's there's a little bit of drama so i mean if we're gonna i mean i guess first we can kind of set up the scene of what's going on he goes to this new school in northern california everybody is blonde everybody is picking on him he feels a little bit of an outcast and they're (laughs) tall and they're athletes and he's scrawny they make a big deal of how like him and his sisters are shorter than everybody else uh and then he gets sort of accepted by everyone when he goes to prom and like videotapes this like senior skip day and Mm -hmm. shows the video and everybody's like oh that's amazing you're not you're cool after all which is a thing that happened and and they used to like some of his old classmates have said like yeah this movie is a real thing he showed it we did all like him a little bit better than uh we used to show this movie every single high school reunion we used to all like go and laugh and spielberg refused to go spielberg never went to any of their high school reunions so they would watch this without him because he was their most famous alumni Mm. and then at some point this movie disappears and like one of his former classmates 
really believes that Spielberg contacted the school and asked them for the movie back because he was oh, worried geez. one of his classmates would sell it or like that it would leak in some way. And so like they see who knows, but they like seem to think that he took this movie and like locked it in a in like a like the end of the Raiders of the Lost Ark arc that it's like <laughs> he, down there he, somewhere. He like deleted his Twitter history before deleting <laughs> your Twitter history was right, a thing. Right. Holy shit. Exactly. Well, it sounds less like he wanted the work out there than he wanted them to profit off of it. Awesome. Which that's like beautifully petty. I love it. Like some of his classmates have been like, I used to write him letters and he's never written me back. And they're all like, he hates us. And so in return, now that this movie comes out, they're like, oh yeah, well, he says he has a girlfriend. He didn't have a girlfriend. He never (laughs) had a girlfriend. And now they're all like (laughs) ratting him out about never actually dating anyone in high school, even though he has, I think a really funny scene. He dates is like, the Christian slut, which is that is that is sun- one of the wildest sequences. It's also one that, like, I think she is stealing every scene that she's in. But oh, she's great. I was yeah. just, I was just like, holy shit! The 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 religious politics going on in this film are wild. <laughs> I think by and large, just to that point in terms of the stealing the scenes, I think by and large, the ratio of good young actor performances in this movie Mm -hmm. is like very impressive to me Um, because I do think there's basically like they're basically all pretty good to very good to great. And it's I feel like getting that kind of a ratio with this many prominent like young actors featured in a movie isn't always the easiest thing uh the easiest thing to accomplish um the whole that whole basically the whole sequence in the hallway where he is confronted about basically making his bully look like a golden god you know on mm-hmm. on camera i i kind of love that because I love the way that it dovetails back to like the reason he stopped making movies in the first place, which is I pointed the camera at something and it got what it got and it wasn't even what I was intending. And then it just turned into this thing that I couldn't like control. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, and I think there are so many like that. The whole let me, let me ask this real quick. Has Spielberg, you know, I'm I'm going to show my ignorance here, but has Spielberg made documentaries? Not to my knowledge. No, I mean, not not in any kind of uh, feature film fashion. Didn't he I, I, record I find... a bunch of interviews for Schindler? He did. Yeah, do like that, that are now. Like, like if you go to the, ho- the Holocaust stuff. Museum, yeah, that that would honestly be the clo- like the closest thing to it. But to my knowledge, I don't think he ever. Ha- it, that's that's had so like a director a director's credit on like a feature documentary. Yeah, I, that, I that's so interesting take. though, because like it, it shows him in this film kind of struggling with you know putting real life up on the screen and his interpretation of it gets him in trouble like twice. And it's kind of like, uh, well, fuck it. I guess I'm only making narrative, you know, movies or stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, so much about this is about the use of a camera as a form of control for a kid who Mm -hmm. needs to be in control. I'm scared Mm -hmm. of a train coming at me. Therefore, I need to reenact it on a camera. I'm scared of the emotions happening in this scene. Therefore, I'm going to imagine I was recording it on a camera watching my parents say that they're separating. And, I, and there's, and that's one of my wonder, favorite like, moments in the movies, film. Like, 
Yeah, yeah. But sometimes I wonder, like watching this movie, how much he's also sort of having a joke on it because I think it's really funny that the thing that freaks him out as a kid almost feels like a modern expansion on you know the Lumiere brothers Mm -hmm. shooting like the train Mm -hmm. sequence in the 1890s and terrifying everybody to have like him in the 50s sitting down and like watching a train coming at him and still it like scaring the death out of him and like a Cecil B. DeMille film I love that it feels kind of like a nod to the past it's one of the things in this it's one of the things in this movie too that like what and I anybody listening like if you, you know, you know, whatever, if you want some extracurriculars, there's a really great A.O. Scott interview. And there's also a really good uh, the DGA podcast has a really good uh, chat with Spielberg and Paul Thomas Anderson about the movie. So you just between those two sources, you can get kind of some of the nuggets that we've been talking about in terms of like how he has at least been talking about this thing, uh, as Bill said, since like the award circuit uh, started. But I do think that, yeah, the train thing, it feels like one of those you're like, no way. Right. Like, like, that's not true. And I feel like so many parts of this movie, at least again, if if like some of the interviews I mentioned are to be believed, like the parts that are the craziest of this movie are the things that really happened, which which feels Mm -hmm. insane to me. Like there's a there's like a genre breaking moment where after uh, Michelle Williams mother has died right she almost reminiscent of a very good uh, Twilight Zone episode she gets a phone call in the middle of the night mm. and picks up and it's her mother and her mother's saying like don't let him in don't let him in and she's like what's happening and according to Steven Spielberg that really happened where one morning they were in their kitchen and her mother was recounting this thing that happened and, and his, and uh, his dad was like, yeah, no, she was having a bad dream. And then that afternoon, his uncle Boris showed up like, and so it's like things like, like that, that you're like, no way, like, come on. Um, but no, al- that feels so it's that kind of stuff that actually feels the most real because it's so specific. <laughs> it's yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so, so, so specific. Cause the, the stuff that doesn't work on me here is the stuff that feels slightly more generic, like watching Spielberg who is famous for like videotaping little kids with light shining in their eyes, looking at something in wonder, just finally getting to do that to himself. Like, okay, cool. <laughs> sure. I give like camera sure. version, young fake version of me, the same <laughs> eyes I gave Henry Thomas. You're like, all right, cool. Congrats. I, I think you always wanted that childhood. And then you just, you shaped yourself into a movie that let it happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting too, because I look back at other filmmakers who have done a movie like this, you know, like Amarcord or mm-hmm. Radio Days and or uh, Fanny and Alexander. And I think, why do I much prefer those films? I mean, even American Graffiti, which is not even like, I don't even think it's like autobiographical per se. But no, it, but in it, spirit, it kind of is, right? Like yes. it's, it's Lucas being yeah. like, no, this is what it felt like, right? Like Yes. Yeah. And, and I love all of those movies. And I think to myself, like, why did they work for me? And, and part of it is because they, as you were saying, Amy, they work on their own. They don't have to be, you don't have to know that this was the life of Woody Allen. You don't have to know that this was based on Bergman's childhood. They're just strong stories that have very little to do with artistry or somebody growing up to be an artist. And, and I, I kind of wonder if you took the filmmaking out of this movie about filmmaking, if it would be an interesting story. And I still don't necessarily think so. 
Um, hmm. Or maybe yeah, it's because there's an, there's some, I don't know. I think we, I think there's this cultural sense that we lose authenticity, the more modernized or the more middle-class something is mm. um, because, okay. So for example, Fanny and Alexander, very much about a, a rich family sort of descending into poverty and another, a million other things, but that's one example. Radio days is definitely about a family, you know, struggling to survive, but it's also so culturally specific um, in this unique geography that it also feels kind of, uh, you know, world into un- in and of itself or unto itself. Um, whereas this is like, could be any suburb, even if it wasn't Arizona, didn't really matter because part, half of it took place in New Jersey and the other part took place in California. And they were all sort of going from one neighborhood to one neighborhood that was basically the same. And the family was, you know, in some ways fairly privileged. And yeah, there were, um, you know, details like the mother adopting a monkey or, or, or you know, falling in love with her husband's best friend. And, and that was definitely the storyline that was the most resonant for me. But again, it all just kind of feels like cherry picking interesting things from his childhood instead of the childhood itself being interesting. And I don't know if the portrait of the artist as a young man actually interests me because stories about writers never interest me. Mm. So I don't know why stories about filmmakers would be interesting. I think though there's that it it's not really like what he's like yes he is cherry picking but he's um it, we're like watching him I mean it's not in real time obviously but it feels like watching someone process things in real time right like and that's to me what I love about this movie is it feels so affected by like the processes of memory, right? Like Mm -hmm. this thing of like, well, I don't know how we got here, but I know that we did, or I don't remember how we got here, but I know that we did. And like, this is the thing that stuck out. Right. And it just, it feels like we are watching sort of two and a half hours of Steven Spielberg, like curate these pivotal moments, not as a, not as a deliberate cherry pick because they're the most interesting, but like, but because he's just like, this is the thing that I remember and how do I tie it all together and make sense? Not, not even narratively, not like, how do I tie it all together to make sense as a story, but how do I tie it all together to make sense of like who I am? Like, it feels like we're watching a therapy session, right? Like it feels like we're watching this sort of like, real time in treatment type uh type thing for you know a person who also happens to be the you know biggest blockbuster filmmaker in the history of cinema right um well, i think it feels like we're watching like a, a slightly dishonest therapy session mm-hmm. you know like sammy fableman is not that interesting like if you ask me tell me about sammy's personality i'd be like uh he's really into movies he's a yes. hard worker but like yes. the, the, the spirit of a Sammy, the prickliness, the individualism isn't here. He's more of like an every kid. And yep. and I think that's why it's like, you know, Michelle every Williams. Every Spielberg kid's an every kid. Yeah, he's an every kid. He's not a singular personality kid. And and so, I, I mean, I agree with part of what you're saying in that like watching his memories unspool in real time. To me, like the best example of that is just his use of watching Michelle Williams's face. Mm. You know, because in the very beginning, when I think... That, 
he's not that alert to the fact that his mother is her own person. You look at Michelle Williams and she's doing just that like beatific mommy smile that drives me mm. nuts sometimes in movies when they're doing it too long, too sincerely, where it's just like, <laughs> oh, hi, beatific smiling. I love you. Everything you need. Movies are dreams. And then when she starts <laughs> to have her breakdown, that's when I think like his close-ups of her become so interesting. You're watching her smile, but like her eyes are dead or you're watching her smile, but there's something missing. The scene where she watches the film, that shot, that like long mm -hmm. take I, for my money, is probably, like, one of the best things that man has ever put in a movie. Like, visually speaking. Kind of for all the reasons you're talking about. Because, like, and I do want to go back to the movies or dreams thing. Because it does tie into the fact that, like I mentioned, I think this movie's terribly marketed. Because it it honed in on that. And yet, you, you open with that, right? It's you're, You open with this almost Charlie Brown-esque opening right where you're it's it's his parents and they're they each have their own way of describing this thing to him and hers is obviously very sort of uh it's flowery and it's it's metaphorical and and she's you know she's trying to kind of wrap it up in a bow for him and it goes along with like you said amy sort of that beatific mommy smile that the way she reads that line to me especially because i've seen this movie twice now and the way especially watching it a second time, the way that line reads in the beginning of the movie to me is like, oh shit, it's like all cracking. Like it's all, it's all falling apart behind her face. Mm -hmm. Like, and I feel like every shot of her in this movie up until she watches the film feels like that. Like you're like, oh, she's got the smile on, but it's like, she's like, really shining it on right right like when she's watching his western movie or his war Ex movie exactly and her smile is like bigger than the it, screen of the theater it, exactly and it might be like a reflection of the thing she's or mitzi's like earnestly feeling but she's like because of who she is and maybe the way she's conditioned herself to like live her life trapped in this marriage and in this family she's like no i gotta like smile big right and the reason i love the scene in the closet is because it's just it feels like the first real expression of emotion in real time that you've seen this woman have since we've known her right in this, in this film. Right. And, um, besides the storm chasing, no, well, but, but even the storm trace chasing is that feels like a perfect, like, okay, I'm going to get real for like two, two seconds. Right. I have a memory of my grandmother, right. Making cookies that had rum in them, right? And there was a stopper on the rum bottle and she's pouring a little bit of rum in, right? And the stopper came out and a bunch of rum went into the cookie dough, right? <laughs> and I witnessed her literally like put the bottle down and then like just pick up the bowl and just like slurp all of the excess <laughs> rum, right? out of the thing right good for her and, right and there's a part of me that as a kid i was like oh that was like a funny thing grandma did and then years later i was like oh grandma was a raging alcoholic like mm -hmm. you, you know what i mean like and the so the storm chasing thing feels like a perfect like version like of mommy's so whimsical mommy and then you're like, no, mommy was reckless. having a nervous <laughs> breakdown yeah. like that's yeah. why I, that's why i love that that uh that part of the movie so much. And I feel like so much, so many of her scenes specifically in the first half uh, of the film 
kind of feel like that where you're like, oh, everything's so whimsical and nice. And you're like, no, this woman is like literally deteriorating in front of our eyes. But uh, isn't that the whole manic pixie dream girl nightmare siren foil thing? Like, you know, mm-hmm. every basically like every manic pixie dream girl is just like some nightmare siren waiting to suck your soul out. I don't think she's I don't think it's that, though. Right. I don't think it's that underneath this is some like world destroying, mean, malevolent person. It's just that like this per like this is this person, you know, at least according to Steven Spielberg, it's almost like, oh, this this person, my mother, like was a plant that was like in a closet instead of by the windowsill, right? Like, it's just this, like, she -hmm. just was like deteriorating because her life, despite being seemingly in a a good place. And I I do think like the thing I, I love the most is I, so his, both his parents are dead. Right. And he sort of almost explicitly kind of waited for, for that to occur. Before, he had to wait a long time. Yeah. His dad only died two years His ago. His dad lived he was to 103 years yeah. old. Crazy. His mom was 97. Wow. Yeah. So like anybody who thinks this is his ending song, <laughs> that guy's going to go another 20 years. Yeah, yeah. And I, that, that's the thing. I, But that said, it's just that, that's all to say that like he clearly, I think, was. I, I don't know if like he's outwardly lying well when you lie to your therapist it's not because you're like i'm gonna trick him it's because i'm not being honest with myself exactly exactly and i i do while i get that vibe from this movie because i think he is still also fighting against coding it into something that feels like a narrative movie right um i think that's also up against the fact of you know him trying maybe for the first time to like be as honest about these things that happened between his parents um, as as he can. And maybe what comes out the other end doesn't get to 100 percent as far as that's concerned. But I do think I mean, to me, that aspect of this movie is what floored me the most is just this kind of like, yeah, man, I don't know. Good for you. Like, get it out there. Like, what a what a thing to just like keep and hold and like have to try and figure out uh, i mean maybe i'm gonna get a little bit too real here are we all are guess... we all gonna do like little therapy <laughs> sessions here I love oh, it. i'm about to get Let, super real let's go right. let's go amy you first do it. <laughs> yeah i guess i guess and maybe this is my 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 psychosis is i think almost everybody comes from sort of a unhappy family in some way or another Agreed. Like parents didn't get along that great. Yeah. Somebody had some issues. You realize that like, I almost, I don't know, almost, I know very few people who are like, my parents were wonderful. And those are the people that I think are kind of the most fucked up. Mm-hmm. You're like, my parents were perfect. And I go home and we all wear matching sweaters and we have three Labradors. I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> you guys freak me out. All the That's hair. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I guess I feel like I'm going to sound so unsympathetic here. Yeah, he's got some trauma, but I don't find it particularly special. I don't even know if trauma was is the word. Like, I would say he was wounded wounds. more than traumatized by these things. Yeah, wounds. You're right. I think that is better. Well, I, I think I think the other thing that that you know we can't lose sight of as well is he's witnessing his mom have a breakdown while he is a child. So he's not, he's not understanding that. Right. He like, like Connor's kind of talking about like, you know, 
grandma just drank a bunch of rum and didn't like cough and didn't like choke and didn't like you know slow down just like straight up just guzzled i'll have to find the recipe for those cookies though because if i recall they're really good cookies uh but you know it's one of those things where it's like you don't realize what is happening until you become an adult and until you start to process those things and start to kind of reflect back on those things um you know and and that's also you know an impossible task um thankfully he also has uh two other or three other siblings how many how many sisters does he have he has three yeah just like the movie yeah three three sisters Yeah. yeah three sisters and so the the youngest sister is like a baby throughout this entire movie pretty much um but uh yeah so you know i think it's interesting to think about him trying to process that him trying to show that and then have to you know think about it how he's going to shoot it shoot it how he's going to make that subtext text in some ways right because you know i think the film does a decent amount of uh, or decent job of kind of hiding some of her troubles and some of her issues until you start to realize that like oh it's the best friend that's always around that's always over and that you know you don't know exactly when it started i think does she actually say? I can't remember. No, in that, they never. Uh, they never seen. They never put a timeline yeah. on it. And so, you know, you you just don't know when that started, and so you don't know when that fracture started to occur. Most likely, because I I can't imagine being with you know someone and then having the best friend also being you know your romantic love interest as well you know having that duplicitous kind of life i can't imagine that's easy to balance um while also being a a fucking caretaker for all these kids that are crazy (laughs) and yet he doesn't it's you know i feel like in terms of like spielberg choosing to finally tell the story it doesn't feel like he is still particularly wounded right like i mean obviously not he's at a very long successful life he's a he's got many things to be happy about um uh, i mean that, but so did robin williams no but i'm just i guess i'm saying like it's not that it doesn't feel particularly raw it just feel and this is the, the thing that i like about this movie is the you know the sort of enviable maturity that he brings to his own parent in depicting his own parents right like there's I feel like I feel like it's not an easy task to like fully try and parse and understand the people in that scenario. Right. And he I think obviously seemingly since he had to wait until his father passed away at one hundred and three to like finally try and get it out. Um, I, you know, he's clearly had a long time to think about it and think about, you know, level set and really think about his parents as people. Right. Um, but I guess to me, it feels like he replicated the actions that happened, but he didn't digest them in a deep way. Do you know, like, mm. it, it feels like I see in this movie, a lot of exactitude. Like I've heard that, <laughs> that he drew sketches of his own houses as a child from memory mm-hmm. and then had his sisters kind of go over them and had his sisters work with like the production designers so that when he walked into the houses, they would be exactly right. And so it feels like it has that attention 
to detail. Mm -hmm. But But where's the emotional truth? Yeah, I just, yeah, I feel like I, it's like, I recognize that my mother was an artist who felt a little suffocated, but it, that's about it. You know, sort of like I have a one sentence idea of what happened. Mm -hmm. Well, and and maybe, maybe that's part of it is the fact that he's been open about the fact that, you know, movies is his therapy. So he's not really delved into this kind of stuff. So maybe his own kind of, you know, reading of these situations and, and things like that, you know, uh, notably it's, it's not a documentary, right? It's a, it's a Steven Spielberg film and, you know, not even called the Spielbergs for Christ's sake. It's, it's called the fable. Well, it's even worse. It's the Fablemans. It's like, we're watching a fable. <laughs> I think, I mean, obviously that's meant to be like a little cheeky, right? But yeah, that's the whole idea. I don't know. I, I, I find I find this whole process like so so I find the making of this probably more interesting than the the emotional truth at times in this film. Um, because I just can't imagine like thinking about how he wants to portray not only his own life but his family's life and his his sisters and his mother and father and and hell his his grandma who seems like just kind of awful at times um and you know i just can't imagine trying to think about how he wants to portray this and then having to get the actors to do exactly what he wants to find that emotional truth because there there is no like like character right it's his mom it's his dad it's it's him and so you know and this kind of ties back to just any kind of filmmaking where you're trying to portray something that's you know, especially disconnected to you, but, you know, relatively true. And I I wonder if you asked him whether this is, you know, a autobiography or whatever. I wonder if he would say yes, or if he would say, no, this is, this is a fictionalized account. And, you know, this is, it's, it's not meant to be real and it's not meant to be true. And it's not meant to be, you know, an exact telling. And yet, you know, Amy, you mentioned it, and I, I've heard this from other other sections as well, where like when he was making that like West or not the Western, the the war movie, like I've I've heard that he had production crews like trying to basically figure out how he made certain things and like, okay, I want these kind of props and I want it to be period specific. And it's just like he it sounds like he was very exacting in all of these other things, but maybe not the emotional truth and maybe not, you know, some of that kind of stuff, which is, which is fascinating. Cause it's like, why, why is he half-assing it? And maybe that's because that's, that's Spielberg. That's, that's as far as he can get. Yeah. Like there's something private here. Cause Seth Rogen has talked about how on set he was crying a lot, like that mm-hmm. he was sobbing there, but I don't, no, if I feel soggy watching it, that terrible, terrible way of phrasing it. But, <laughs> but yeah, I feel like there's something in him that wants to make this a little bit more dignified than mm-hmm. how he felt in the actual process of it scene to scene. Like there's a gulf there between what drew him to it and what he's giving us to hold on to about it. I, I think the other thing that's interesting is that 
it does show him be petty towards the end with his filmmaking when when he shows the bully the main bully i would say uh and you know shows those like like that's that's cutting room floor stuff like that's not that's not something you you put in your 15 minute little little mini celebration of of senior skip day and you know his excuse of like well but that's that's just what the camera showed and I'd be like that's bullshit that's that's cutting room floor stuff that's that's petty bullshit of like you know the highest caliber where you're just making fun of this kid that you can't physically get back at but maybe you know you show him up on screen and it's like oh okay you know that's that's a little petty he even does the delicious capstone to that whole scene which is he gets meta petty where you know the bully's like don't tell anyone about this and he's like yeah i won't i mean unless i make a movie about it right like Uh uh it's like it's like the final like yeah you know whatever Right. Um, that's such a wink such a wink to the audience yeah, you know? which like you know it's an it's an obvious easy joke but uh i mean but it's such a dream right like i would love to know if his bully the second one actually like did sob you know like he really yeah. achieved his dream of like i'm gonna make my bully cry and then the other kid is watching it i don't do, do any of you guys have pets i do no. yes yes okay when the uh, when the jock guy was watching his you know kind of triumph of the will type of yeah. documentary footage of how wonderful of a runner he is, the way his little face was like quivering watching it, I, it just immediately made me think of what my cat does when he watches like YouTube videos of birds. He was just like, what? "That's me. What's happening? What's happening?" It is just like all just a lit lit up with like energy. I think that uh, so to my knowledge, right in real life. The jock is real, right? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, the other well, dude. yes, but with an amendment. What I, what I, what his high school friend, high school acquaintances ratted him out as saying is that he didn't have an issue with the jocks. Um, that he had an issue with like the cool. They call them the car club guys. Uh, like I'm, I'm mm. assuming that means more like the greasers. I'm assuming that means basically like the Jets from West Side Story. Oh, I was picturing was like, like Harrison Ford from American Graffiti oh. or something. Like you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, mean, I was, well, I was thinking it's like the guys yeah. from Greece. Yeah, yeah. John Travolta. <laughs> yeah, it was those guys. So it was like the cool, the cool offbeat kids who had an issue with him, and not like the jocks. Which is why like having them be jocks and having them be named Logan and Chad just feels so, so funny, artificial. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's sort of like I was I was beat up by the cooler kids. Sucks. I think there is a good movie in here if he had cut 20 minutes or so and just really made it a tight story about kind of what you were saying, like turning when your parents became people. Like, have I seen that before? Yes, but I do think that thread is the strongest. Um, you know, Michelle Williams, I would like to talk about the performances a little sure. bit because there's something really like both both authentic and put on about her performance and I can't quite put my finger on it because like within the first I don't know two minutes of the story she's going dawling and I'm just like God, come on like I, I oh she's like when she gets the monkey and she's like I needed the laugh well it feels God. it feels like you know I mean my parents weren't like that but i definitely had older people in my life who were like that kind of person artistic people who were very much like you know c- commanded a room or or commanded a table if they were sitting at it 
Um, it's not even the extroversion. It's the, I don't know, the the Jew face that she's doing. That <laughs> it's, I, which I get, like the accent work is fine, but I mean. The, the, the Jew face of it all is, a, I mean, it's a great point because I do think it's worth talking about in regards to, you know, I don't know if he's the person making this movie and casting these people. I, you know, do you let it slide? Like not every person playing a Jew is going to be Jewish, but there's something really intense about our performance where somebody is minstrel sizing the Jewishness. Uh, like, the way I kind of read Anne Hathaway mm. in Armageddon Time, where it just felt like, you know, artifice. Uh, and maybe every performance like this is artifice, and I just happen to be sensitive to it because I am Jewish and mm -hmm. my family is from the New York area, and I my parents were not even boomers. They were basically born before World War II ended. Mm -hmm. So Whoa, really? they're like, oh, yeah. I mean, well, my father, for sure. Um, my mom born in 46. So I guess exactly a boomer, um, like was born right after her father came home from the war. But, you know, that's, that's like, not just my people. It's like who I still am as a person. Like sure. I'm the only, I'm like the youngest person I know who uses Yiddish like regularly. And so <laughs> when I watch a movie like this, I'm just, I feel like I'm, I'm listening for the cracks, like sure. the waste, a classical music enthusiast might be like watching tar just to kind of be like, what what's like wrong or with fighter this world pilot that's created? Is, a fighter pilot is watching Top Gun Maverick. Exactly, the, the like, list goes know, on. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're never really gonna satisfy me unless you're like the Softy Brothers or something. Um, so, did you did you not did you not appreciate the the Yiddish and and the Jewishness of you know besides I, I know you you started this off saying that you wanted to talk about the performances, but. You yeah. know the 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 Yiddish being used and and the Jewishness of kind of the dinner sequences and and stuff like that and and the songs and like I mean was was that a success or was that just more of uh, that bitch eating crackers in the corner kind of no, thing? No, it wasn't bitch eating crackers, and I don't feel bitch eating crackers about this movie. Um, you know, there was a lot to recommend it. I and I keep harping on this, but I really felt like the storyline of the infidelity and, and I don't even like using the word infidelity because it's it's not just like a tawdry fuck no, affair no that it feels have. like a very human very like yes me measured like uh what's and like almost against your will you fall in love with this other person and you're still in love with your husband yeah like, in the most like understandable way possible almost right where you're like yes yeah i don't know i guess the heart does want what the heart wants right like um well there's they're contrasted so heavily like the dad is so joyless and seth mm. is so fun like it it makes you surprised that she wound up with the dad in the first place. And yet to go back, I, I kind of got the impression that like they wound up together because like that's what happened at the time. Right. Like I was sort of under the impression that it's like, yeah, I don't know. It was, you know, 
it was the time. And basically, if you wanted to, like, be with anybody in any specifically intimate capacity, you probably just had to get married. Like You're saying you can't bone until there's a ring. You have, uh, <laughs> what do they call it, on, on transparent, like, Jewish musical chairs? Like, you know, at some point, the the music stops and you're just got to stick yeah, with the one I, you're I, with. That's kind of, but I, but I got the idea oh, that like, Jesus. I, I got the idea that they do like genuinely like each other. Like I, my vibe was like, maybe they started dating and they, and it was like, yeah, these seem like nice people. And it's like, well, you want to fuck? Okay, cool. We'll do that. But like, we definitely got to get married. Like, yeah, they did it so many uh, times. They had four kids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, th I think, I think one of the issues that it, it kind of gets to always is the idea of, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side and, mm. and kind of things like that. Right. Like, you know, they were, they're most likely for a lot of people, especially it seems like Mitzi's background. It seems like, you know, fa fairly, I'm not sure who is Jewish in in this group or if they're both Jewish. Um, forgive me, but um, it seems the like actors or the characters. No, no, the characters. I think they both are. I they're all Jewish. Yeah, I think they're okay, both. Are, okay. Yeah. Um, but you know, especially her her mom. I can just imagine her mom being like, "No, you're not dating. Like, you find a boy, you marry that boy." <laughs> right, right. And so it's like. Well, Jesus. And then I met his friend and his friend's fucking Seth Rogen and he's delightful. Right. And it's like, wh what the fuck am I d supposed to do with my life now? You know, but actually, so. I, I, it's not just like, oops, I married the wrong man. She still loved Paul Dano. Yeah. I mean, that that's the tragedy of this. That's, is the, like, mo that's the most remarkable part about the whole relationship is that like. And, and even with the performances of it all, like Dano plays it in a way where, you know, Bert doesn't seem his name's Bert, right? I keep wanting to say Arnold because that's yeah, Spielberg's <laughs> that's Spielberg's uh, real dad's name. But oh, because he looks like an Arnold. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, but Bert isn't. You know, he's not some stern taskmaster, like you said. He he is kind of joyless, but he does also seem like generally nice. Like he he seems he's a like nebbish. He se yeah, he's <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but he seems like a kind. He's a mensch. He seems he's like a, a kind man. He is a mensch. Yeah. There, I mean, the thing is, Benny is also a mensch and, and you can almost envision that if this uh, film or the story happened to occur at a different time period, that they could almost make it work as like a thruple because sure. they're already <laughs> kind of thruple-y at the, the, the beginning. The scene where they cut her nails kind of and they're like, oh my God, like that, that was like oh, yeah. Thing. Yeah. corny. Yeah. Like that was like. Mm. When like, when do we get whoa. horny Spielberg? We never get horny whoa. Spielberg. <laughs> I mean, even even the sequence at the campfire, right? Where where the oh, sister yeah. is is like, no, like, and and then pleads with all the males yeah. in the group, and is like, cut this out. And her father's just like, go sit down. Like this like, is awesome. Yeah. And it's just like it's just like, what is going on yeah. here? You I mean, know, your son is just filming this and your best friend's right there too. That's also when the, just like, that's when the Williams score kicks in for the first time and it's lovely. It's almost just like a cuckolding thing. Not even like, almost. It definitely is. It's like he, no, 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 no. Yeah. But I mean, like a like a like he likes uh, it, like as, a, like as a fetish. Uh, yeah, like he gotcha. like not, but not like literally. Just yeah. it it evokes that yeah. uh, kind of dynamic, and and there are shades of that well before you actually think there's something going on between them because she's begging her husband to bring Benny along. Yeah. 
like mm-hmm. right when they move to Arizona, like when the kids are really little. But you and you get the idea that like that line of dialogue of like, why do you give a shit so much is like right there. But the, but Bert doesn't ask it because he doesn't want to ask. You know, he doesn't want to like, no, mm-hmm. uh, or at least he doesn't want to like say it out loud. Right. He doesn't want to like air finally air these things out. I think that that kind of everything we're talking about is where I would disagree on the emotional truth of of this movie in terms of the way you were framing it before, because I, I think that that is where the emotional truth is. And that's kind of the point is that what is the is uh, just the unspoken, like it's all the lines of dialogue that like aren't said. It's all the, it's all the little boiling points that get reached, like naming the monkey Benny and, and, and like, mm. all, you know, all, all these little so things good. like that. The, the, I feel like the emotional truth of this movie is all about sort of the in-between moments and the in-between things. And, and it's when it comes out that the truly disastrous things happen, right? Like it all comes out in a, a you know, through through pieces of celluloid that he films that he has to show to his mother to be like, look, like, I know, because he can't even bring himself to say, I know, right? He has to just be like, no, just sit in this fucking closet and watch this movie and don't come out until you're finished, right? Like, and I think that to me feels like the, like the emotional heart and soul of this movie, this thing of living in a, living in a family and in a dynamic that is so sort of ideological is the wrong word, maybe philosophical, but it's so philosophically at odds with one another. And yet somehow manages to still, you know, be on this foundation of like a seemingly deeply founded, like love and bond. And yet you can have all that. And because of the philosophical differences, there is just this empty space that fills up. Right. And um, anyway, I'm going on a rant now, but no, no, I I mean, I think there's truth here. And this is what I wish he had focused on. Like that when I said at the beginning, like there are several different movies here and I just kind of wish there had been one. I wish that the movie had really honed in on this relationship and this dynamic and in the family, because it, it is, it's really soul killing. Um, I mean, I don't know if anybody here has been in a, a dynamic where like you, I don't, I don't even like, I'm not saying I relate to this, but I'm just saying like, there's like a Vonnegut quote out there about how your partner, it can't always be everything for you. Like mm, it can't be your best friend. It can't be your, mm-hmm. your support. It can't be your you know, mentor, your, your it can't lover, be your, your buddy. Yeah. Yeah. It can't be your movie watcher and, and like everything. Yeah. Like the I, modern version of what we think it's supposed to be. Yeah. yeah. Like, like we go into these hetero, well, not hetero necessarily, but like these monog- monogamous two person relationships, putting way too much pressure on the other person to be everything we want them to be. And there is some comfort and joy in having other people that you can be close with um, that fulfill everything for everybody else. And it's not necessarily even sexual or romantic. It's Mm, just like a wonderful intimacy. Um, whether it's, you you have couple friends or maybe you, you, you know, like my husband and I are really close with, um, somebody that we travel with a lot and there's a lot of intimacy there. Um, 
like through friendship. And, and so I guess maybe I felt personally moved by that because I know what it's like to be, to feel love, (laughs) you know, among a a group of people that's not even necessarily romantic. It's Mm. just, it's just joyful to all share in that together. And it's not, there's no jealousy and whatever. And of course the jealousy and stuff comes out when she is forced to make a choice, but she was forced to make a choice because she was forced out of the, out of the dynamic that she had yeah, fulfilled for herself. Her, yeah. Right. Sure. Yeah. Like it's lovely when they can all sit around the table and share frozen peas, you know, and mm-hmm. it's lovely right. when they can like cut her fingernails. But then in the moments where you see Spielberg silently setting up that choice, the one that really kind of hit me was like when they all go to the theater and they see his war movie mm. and she's so delighted, like we were talking about. And the first person she turns to to share her delight with, you know, she's sitting mm-hmm. in between Seth and, and her that. husband and she turns to him. And that's what really felt like the stab, you know, is like the person that you choose to share your joy with. And, that- and, and of course, and of course, during that sequence as well, he's just like, like dagger eyeing them. Right. And then, and then that's the first Sa- time Sammy that really, you mean. yeah, 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 and that's the first time that we really see, uh, you know, him kind of blow up at his, not blow up, but silently, like, like stiff arm. Yeah. I guess is what I want to say. An extreme, uh, an extreme cold baby. shoulder, like the mother of all cold shoulders. Uh, yeah, to yeah. both of them. Yeah, yeah. but yeah, I mean, is, is was there something else, Amy? I'm sorry. I, I oh no, didn't I was gonna to say I hear. I feel so torn because I agree with what Robin is saying. And yet, like, to me, I could see this movie being more solid in or feeling like it had more of a constructed point it was making if, like, it ended more on, is his mom, you know, back back with, like, Benny? Are they happy? Does he forgive them? Is there a peace there? How does this all shake out? Does it shake out in a way that's fine? Or does she seem to, it seems like she maybe comes home. That All of that seems vague to me. And I feel like part of me wants that ending, but then part of me feels like the best scene in this movie is honestly just having this ending cameo from David Lynch's John Ford. Yeah, I'm glad. And you, I don't want to give that up for I'm anything. I'm glad you got us there. Cause I, <laughs> no, I mean, I think, I think the way he structures the ending is correct. Cause like he does, there's the whole bit with the, the picture, right? The, you know, he, they get the pictures in the mail from Arizona and it's from a block party that she and Benny were having. Right. And there's a photo of the three daughters and then Benny and her. And, you know, I, there's a lot. Uh, we've talked a lot about Michelle Williams. I I think Paul Dano's also amazing in this movie. There's so much. Like I said before, like the, he does such a good job of like not saying the thing. Um, and that just the shot of him where he looks at those photos, specifically how that goes against how she sees the f- film earlier in the movie depicting her emotional infidelity right like this like constant going back to imagery as a source of truth whether you want it to be or not right and this truth that you like may or may not be ready for he like looks at those photos and that's where he kind of gets maybe the most like quietly emotional you've seen him in the movie other than when they have like the little blow up um in the uh in their sort of temporary house. Um, <laughs> but he then kind of just says like, Hey, I, I'm going to paraphrase the line, but he says something to the effect of, you know, we've gone too far in our lives together for this to be goodbye. 
right? Like this thing of this person will never not be a part of your life. She'll never not be a part of my life. Um, the actual real world postscript to it allegedly is that obviously his, his mom marries the Benny figure. His father got remarried and uh, the Benny figure passed away. And apparently his mom and his stepmom and his dad just all became the best of friends. Like, like, like apparently, and I kind of, I do, I do like that the movie doesn't give you that ending, you know, um, cause to your mm -hmm. point, Amy, I think the, the form of joy that he chooses to end the movie on is like incredible. Um, but yeah, anyway, I don't know. For, so for whatever that's worth for people to just walk away with in real life, uh, they wound up just, just becoming, uh, the best of friends. But I think that is captured in the in that Paul Dano line of just like, look, like it doesn't feel great now. And looking at this photo makes me want to jump off a fucking roof, but like, it'll be okay. And it's all going to be fine. And I think, you know, in so far as he tries to thread this whole narrative, because while it is not like the dry, you know, it's not every scene's not about this specific conflict. I do think he finds a way to thread every other little story back to this thing, right? Like it all, those are all the branches and this is the, this is the trunk. Right. And, um, and yeah, but it gets us to the Lynch cameo, which I do want to talk about because what a scene that scene. I, uh, I just was, I was doing a full on Michelle Williams smile during that entire scene. It was a, it was an ear to ear grin. Um, Robin, we'll start with you. What do you think of the ending of this movie? Nothing. <laughs> like it, it. It didn't I hit mean, you at all. Not even a little. It was cute. <laughs> it, it's cute. I mean, and and that's the best I can say about it. Okay. I mean, you're specifically talking about when he walks into the office, right? Yeah, just that. I, I would say the Los Angeles portion as a whole, let's say, because that I mean, the it's really those two scenes, uh, two or three scenes, right? Like dovetail together. There's the flash forward to L.A. where he's deciding to drop out of college and uh, and he's living with his dad. And then the, the scene in the uh, in the office. Nobody wants to see somebody go into an MFA program as their happy ending. <laughs> You know, and that's this just goes back to my whole thing of like when somebody shows off their life, but they show their sort of middle of the road privilege, like not like it, you're neither on, on you're not on either extreme, like you're not extremely poor and living in a traumatic household. Robin, Robin hates the middle, the middle, fuck yeah, the middle, Robin. But, see, but literally, or you're not showing off some extreme wealth and dysfunction and you're just kind of If the horizon's me... in the middle, it's boring as shit. Yeah, you're giving me the in-between, like I haven't, I barely, rarely have anything to get done. If it's not Queen of Versailles or or if it's not, <laughs> I, I don't know, like Schindler's List, I, speaking of Spielberg, like, yeah. I don't know what to tell you. Amy, what it about you? It just kind of goes. <laughs> well, I should confess that I come from a Lynch household. Like, I bought my boyfriend a coffee mug from Etsy that has just David Lynch tweets on it oh, so that amazing. he can sit there and kind of contemplate them every day. There's a bunch of David Lynch tweets shoved on this one <laughs> oh, tiny coffee geez. mug. Uh, it's, and I will also say that he saw this movie before I did. So before I saw it, I was just getting like 
like texts from him, like, just wait till you see the cameo. Just wait till you see the cameo. And I didn't know what he was talking about because mm. I like to stay very, very <laughs> ignorant. I mean, A, I just love this combo of Lynch as Ford because they yeah. are such different styles of filmmakers, absolutely different in their intentions and what they want to do and how they see the world. And so seeing Lynch kind of like walk on and carry some of this like intimidating gravitas, I adored that. It's like watching, I don't know, like um, like a bunny rabbit put on a shark costume or something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but, but like it fits so, well. Like no, somehow I feel the, like it's it the fits. opposite, like watching a a shark put on a bunny costume <laughs> oh, in comparison. Ford is scary. But um I mean I appreciate seeing moments of kind of like passing batons, you know, like acknowledging the the presence of Ford, like people tipping their hat to like who the people really are that inspired them. I loved after the fact reading that David Lynch had to be talked into doing this. Like Laura Dern had to call David Lynch over and over and over again, try to get him to say yes to it. And then he finally said he would do it only if there were bags of Cheetos on set, which <laughs> beautiful. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, David Lynch, for that. But what I kept going back and forth, and I'd love to hear what y'all think about this. What do y'all think? Is he is he a puffs guy or the the little thin stick kind of? He's guy? a crunchy guy. I think Lynch is a crunchy. I think Cheetos. he's crunchy too. Yeah, yeah. Crunchy I don't Cheetos. even think he likes hot. I think he likes sim- like the yeah. hot. I think he's simple. Yeah. <laughs> ah, too bad he's not a puff guy. Okay. Sorry, Amy. You were saying <laughs> what you kept going back <laughs> oh, and forth yeah. on. But I was saying like you have the, you know this kind of ending moment where Lynch is talking to him about perspective. You know, like how do you see things? What is mm. your angle on seeing things? Like, and. And then it kind of goes from like, you know, when the horizon's in the middle, it's boring as shit. And he immediately then cuts to a scene of like baby Spielberg, you know, almost traipsing, seeming like he's going to burst into a musical number, dancing down the uh, the <laughs> studio backlit, of course, shot with like the horizon in the middle. And I have to say, it looks great. The horizon <laughs> in the middle in that little moment looks gorgeous. And then he like, you know, you see the camera be like, oh, whoops. And it like shifts it to the bottom. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I was wondering what to make of that. I was like, is this Spielberg saying, man, it was great to talk to Ford. And yeah, that was a real sharp lesson, but I can make the middle look good. Or is it like, oh, wait, 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 wait. I will never, ever forget the lessons of John Ford. No, I, th- I think it's the latter. I think it's like a good natured, like... This is because apparently, uh, you know, if again, if if Spielberg in an interview is to be believed, I suppose it, apparently that scene is like word for word what happened. Oh, totally. Right? Um, but but what I'm saying is, doesn't it look better when it's in the middle in that ending shot than when he moves it to the low? It's like he almost moves it too low, and then it looks awkward to me. I'd have to. I would almost. You're telling me someone on Twitter hasn't like posted both frames side by side or something. Um, no, <laughs> oh God, I, I'm refusing to log on. I would, my yeah, probably better that way. <laughs> um, no, I, I, yeah, I'd have to look at it. I had read that apparently he also they like had to do that in post because he was they they decided I believe to do it like on the day and then mm. and. Um, the operator was like doing it too nicely, like doing the pan too nicely, you know, um, too professionally. And so he was like, Spielberg was like, why don't I do it? Cause I haven't done this in a while. And like, it might be a little bit more naturalistic if it's like someone who isn't amazing at moving a camera. Right. And so he was saying that even him doing it, like he was still doing it like too smooth to the point where they ultimately just had to like take it into post and have the editing team, like give them this herky jerky, uh, 
tilt up um, to reframe the horizon, which I just think so much of that whole thing almost encapsulates so much of Steven Spielberg as a, as a filmmaker, just like <laughs> just just the going into that one uh, one shot. But um, yeah, anywho, um, we, you know, we, we went right over. I name dropped him and we didn't really stop. Can we talk about Judd Hirsch for like five minutes? Must we? Oh, come on, Robin. Not even Judd. It's one of those gimme an Oscar seven minute performances. Like, okay, Judy Dench, we get it. But you weren't you happy to see him? No. Oh, come on. I'm trying, Robin. I'm trying. He's he's the poor <laughs> circus worker. He's he's exactly what you're asking for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe make that movie about him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for seven minutes, it is. It doesn't take over the screen. He does. He it's does. Such a gimmicky experience. Like, <laughs> I'm not saying it's a gimmicky performance, although you know, like the Yiddish, uh, like okay, but it's done almost explicitly to be like, give this man an Oscar. I don't know if I feel like that's a bit cynical. Like, I don't know if that's why he put Judd Hirsch in the movie as his uncle boy. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think he and Kushner were crafting this scene being like, and you know what? We're going to put this scene in here because for seven minutes, we're going to get somebody an Oscar. Like, I absolutely believe that conversation. <laughs> I'm just glad it wasn't Mark Rylance. I oh wish Spielberg had never sure. put him on the map. I find him so irritating every time he shows up on screen with his little nope, smirky, we don't smirky have any face. Out, we don't have any outfit fans here. Nobody's a fan oh, of the outfit God. here. Oh, I love the outfit. <laughs> outfit. Did you call him a smirker? That's such a yeah. good description. He's so smirky. He always looks like he's wearing too much blush. His eyebrows. Are, <laughs> he looks like a little marionette. Pinocchio. <laughs> yeah. Every time he shows up in a movie lately, I'm like. He's Spielberg's what? Pinocchio. <laughs> dance yeah, really puppet is. dance oh, oh and the rylance slander too although admittedly i do detest uh i do detest his performance in ready player one and don't look up but uh oh, terrible. Don't look up either. i just think Ready you should take him out of every bad. single movie and put richard jenkins in instead every time i see i'm like why isn't this richard jenkins well, because Richard Jenkins is is in too many uh, Guillermo del Toro del Toro <laughs> stolen. Yeah, Jenkins. So. Yeah, Jenkins is is del Toro's Rylance. That's what it is. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Um, no, I the uh, the Judd Hirsch of it all. It it. I just love. I mean, what a perfect. He feels like the perfect actor for the part, right? And and to your point, Robin, maybe it's almost like too perfect like it might be a little uninspired in that regard which i would pro probably agree with um it was just like giving me like al pacino and hunters where it's just like so put on i guess so i mean it's at least a little like you know at least it's judd hirsch and not al pacino and hunters i guess is my point right like yeah yeah and listen, i like judd hirsch i get yeah. it I didn't he already get an Oscar, though? To all of that point, I mean, I don't think he will. I also, I would be a, a, a little surprised if he got nominated, actually. Um, but maybe. It's it's happened before. You know, like, the he'll be the, the Ruby D this year. Um, or, um, oh my God, that guy. I can't think. Uh, Sierran Hines? Karen? Karen Hines. Mm -hmm. Oh, in... in yeah. yeah, but at least he's like... 
he's like a little more of like a a presence that pervades parts portions of Belfast, you know, that like I can at least I can at least get like to but and and to your point, like this is truly Again, it's that it's that shitty fucking marketing. If you watch the trailer, it does make it seem like, oh, and Judd Hirsch is like the grandpa, right? Or something, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it's like, yeah, he's going to be the grandpa figure that's going to guide him through all of it. And what I love is what we get instead, which is like, he's this like ghoul that Michelle Williams is afraid (laughs) of that shows up and just like tears his clothes and terrorizes his, uh, you know, his great nephew or whatever. Um but and then leaves and then leaves he's just this weird he's it's like the circus came into town you know what i mean like he literally like put mm-hmm. puts up the tent does some wild shit and then by the next morning he's on the train he's out of there um, but what's interesting about that part is like this you know this uncle shows up basically to be like art is madness you like if you pursue this path you're going to go crazy you're going to make enemies you're going to lose everybody you've ever loved you have to be ready to go all in and I don't know if that if Spielberg believes he's ever truly going on and gone all in. If Spielberg is like, yeah, I am a crazy psychopath to my family when nobody's looking, or if he's like, what was this guy talking about? You can totally be an artist and come home for dinner and have meatloaf with your kids. Like, I'm be- curious about what that moment means to him. No, that's a great point because I found myself thinking about, and I th- I think he's only been married once before Kate Capshaw. Right? Am I making that up? Yeah, he was getting a divorce around the time that he was doing the uh, Temple of Doom, which right. is why that film is so angry. Right. Um, <laughs> or was no Lucas was getting the divorce, or were they, they were both going were they through both getting divorces? They were both in a anti woman state. Okay, I mean that makes a lot of <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Um, but I I say that only because I did find myself thinking like, and I don't. I guess to, to what we were speaking about before, I don't, I don't know if we could ever count on him being like this honest in an interview. Um, but I would be, yeah, I'd be curious to know specifically like how he would assume these things ultimately affected like his own marriage. Right. Um, I think I just want to see the Spielberg movie. That's like the Nicolas Cage movie earlier this year where he's like, <laughs> right. I am a crazy madman. And this is what it took to be number one for so long. <laughs> I wanted to see him have more fun with it almost, you know? Yeah. I want him to, I want the Spielberg who's like, I'm not in the sight and sound list again. Fuck all of yeah. you guys. <laughs> you know? Do you know who I he's am? He's like, who's like burning the place down a little bit. Um. Yeah. I want that because I believe that that guy is there. And I think maybe that's why I'm just sort of a little grouchy is it's yeah. like, it almost feels like a strip tease. I'll show you who I really am. No, no, no. I'm just another cute kid with lights in my eyes. Yeah, I would. Bu- I mean, I, I certainly buy that in terms of, I don't think, you know, f- for all the people say about it, I actually don't think this movie is particularly saccharine. Um, but I do, I, I do think it's actually quite honest, but honest on his terms to your point, Amy, like, He's kind of giving as much as he feels capable of giving within the confines of being big director Steven Spielberg. And he'll he'll maybe never let you fully in on the catty, petty, um, you know, little things that 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 sort of happen there. Yeah, we'll just have we'll have to, have to do an unauthorized Steven Spielberg. Movie. <laughs> I like it. Um, Connor, can you elucidate what you mean by you don't think this movie is saccharine? I guess my point is like if people watch the trailer, right. And they see this little boy sitting in front of a movie screen and they see 
you know, and they see that against the line movies or dreams, right? Like that feels deeply saccharine to me or the thing with the monkey and the like, I just needed a, like the, the trailer for this movie condenses all the things that on their face feel like really cloying saccharine things. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think in the context of the movie, they are not that in the context of the movie, you're watching a kid get traumatized. You're watching a woman emotionally and mentally deteriorate on screen and, and, and what is actually at play is, is seemingly, at least according to his memory, right, as honest a representation as he can fixate to put on screen as opposed to something glossier. Does that make sense? Sure. I, I, I agree with you that, you know, in a vacuum, each of those things would feel incredibly honeyed and, you know, saccharine and, and cloying and all that. Um, I don't think it's quite as gritty as, or rather my takeaway is that, it, that the film is not as quite as gritty as maybe you're taking away because I, and I kind of repeating this, but like, I don't see his experiences like overtly traumatizing. Like they, you know, as Amy kind of said earlier, like all unhappy families are unhappy in their own sorts of ways, uh, sort of. And you know, it's just like another unhappy family, but I, I don't know if th these are like deep seated uh, scars that we see in him. Um, I mean, yeah, like divorce is terrible or parents who have disparate belief systems, you know, that's, that's difficult, but is it, is it something that's totally life like something that's like almost like life ruining or something that's going to, you know, send you into a tailspin. Like, I, I don't think he proves his own point if that's the point. I guess so. But context also is like so crucial to that. Right. Because like this is also a time where like people were not getting divorced all the time. Right. Like this. Like, I think. Oh, weirdly, that's sort of a. I don't want to send us on a crazy detour, but people got divorced a lot at, at the turn of the century. And then the 50s convinced us they didn't. Oh, mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah, it's it's the 50s are really like the we erased our history generation where they're like, oh, no, 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 no. None of that ever happened. And things have things have always been just like this. I suppose to that point, like, would that include how people at the time felt about it? Uh, that I guess what I'm saying is, yeah, it would be he would feel alone in the 50s. But right. I always like to point out that the 50s are a lie. Well, no, 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 of course. I guess my point is just at the time, if you're a kid in the 50s and your parents are getting divorced, you're like, what the fuck? People don't do this. Like, yeah, they buy into the lie. Yeah, exactly. So like it's it's this thing of. And thank you for for clarifying that point. I appreciate that. Um, so I get mad at the 50s all the no, time. No, 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 no. It's I think it's a it's a great point. But but point being like. I just think it's obviously not a thing that any kid at that time is aware of. So something like this that might feel a little bit more commonplace or not that big of a deal, generally speaking, probably hits way, way harder in that specific context. Okay. So <laughs> I have a question, uh, like a follow-up then. What do we think of this movie as compared to Armageddon Time, which obviously oh, they have... They, they are different, but they kind of run parallel to each other. Definitely. They definitely feel like two filmmakers processing a very specific thing that happened to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Um, two Jewish filmmakers. Yes, yeah, who sure. Go back in time to try to recreate as much of that period as they can to also reflect on our current era to some degree. Sure. Um, yeah, I don't, I mean, I like this movie more, but again, I think it's also Armageddon time feels a little bit more like it's trying to make a pretty obvious point out of that director's personal experience. And I do mm -hmm. like, I do like that movie. Like, I think, I think there's a lot that functions well for me in that movie, but I think where it lands, you're kind of like, yeah, I don't know, man, good for you. Like in, in just get working through this, you know, like I'm not mm -hmm. really going to begrudge any, any artist or filmmaker using that medium to try and process a thing they feel like processing. I think what feels weird to me about Armageddon time is there is that you do get the sense that maybe James Gray is feeling like he's telling you something you don't already know. And I just feel like <laughs> in this contemporary moment, like I'm like, well, I'm glad you got there, I guess. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's kind of this like, okay, all right, pal. Um, it's a teachy movie. Spielberg feels a little bit more aware in this movie that he's like, no, like this is for me and it's about me and it's me processing a thing. So like, come along and check that out. You know what I mean? Like it, mm -hmm. th they both, you're, you are right. Like they both do like function in that avenue. I just think there's not, yeah, there's not as much like, and not that Armageddon time's not like finger waggy, but it's yeah, it's there's not as much moralizing, I think, in Fableman's. It's I think Fableman's feels like a more um, honest dissection of like the people at play. I think that's that's true. And to Amy, your point about uh, kids with lights in their eyes. I mean, I can't think of a kid in a movie who's less like that than the one in armageddon time because he's like like james gray knows that he was a little piece of shit and he portrays himself as yeah one. that's definitely i think there's like a little bit of that in fableman's obviously like clearly he he's clearly putting things in there where he's like yeah maybe the way i reacted wasn't great because i was a kid and i didn't process what this dynamic meant to my mother, right? Like that's like seemingly on play, but like, no, James Gray makes no bones in Armageddon time about like what a fucking piece of shit he was. Like, <laughs> well, we um, better get out of here. Cause Amy's yes, got a, a yeah. screening. Uh, yeah. We will wrap it up. Um, Amy, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Any just final quick thoughts on, on Fableman's before we let you go? Uh, well, I don't think this film should die in a fire. There's a lot I really admire about it, but I do think if this film wins best picture in a year that I think has so much creativity and so much emotional honesty, I will get very upset. And I, I'm a little nervous that it will. Cause I know I we love these like saccharine I'm filmy pictures. And I mean, in a, yeah, when we've got something like everything everywhere, all at once up there, that's really bold about relationships between parents and kids and complicated and dynamic and has a lot more to say than this movie does. I just don't want us to give this film a pass. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah. It's touching. I'll watch it again when he dies, when he's 125, but like, <laughs> you know, um, but that's where I'm coming at this film. Well, thank here, here. you. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. But on that note, uh, Robin, where can people find you and uh, anything to plug? Oh, God. Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter at R-O-B-Y-N-B-A-H-R, where I'm just mostly retweeting these days. Um, uh, you can find my writing uh, most typically at thehollywoodreporter.com. 
And am I plugging anything? Um, well, I'm really excited because the Critics' Choice Awards uh, TV nominations came out today. And Ooh. I served on the nominating committee for the um, Foreign Language Series Award. Oh, and that's cool. Just super happy with the selection, uh, especially my brilliant friend, which is one of my favorite shows of all time. And I don't think it's gotten as much buzz or love as it really should, because I think it's honestly up there with like, the Sopranos and Mad Men in terms of its epic storytelling. And uh, I'm so glad it got one of its first major nominations today. That's awesome. High praise. Bill, what about you? Where can people find you? And uh, what are your, Uh, what are your final thoughts? You can find me on the Slack channel, always mixing it up, always having a fun time there. Uh, You can also follow me on Instagram, uh, where I post photos of dogs or whatever I'm barbecuing up lately um, at CableBFG. Or sorry, uh, that is not my Instagram handle. Uh, <laughs> that is my email uh, and username to most things. Uh, why isn't it Cable BFG? I don't know. Uh, it's because <laughs> Billstagram. Be, yeah, it's at Billstagram. Oh, so, I like that. Uh, though. Have, that rolls off. Ha- the have, have fun with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so hopefully, hopefully, uh, you know they don't change their their name to like Meta or some bullshit like that. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, you can find me on there and. In terms of final thoughts, uh, I don't care if this wins Beck's picture because, uh, you know, what wins doesn't mean that uh, doesn't doesn't say that it's good or bad. So I don't care if it, if it does. It does. And I also really enjoyed this movie. We'll, so we'll, all, we'll <laughs> always have the film regardless. Uh huh. Um, well, thank you for, for letting me, uh, just jump in as an interloper and host, uh, yeah, where can ho- we find you host your podcast? You can find me on Twitter uh, for now, at least, uh, at scruffy looking. You can also find the B side, the podcast that I co-host with the film stage is Dan Mecca at TFS B side on Twitter and Facebook. More importantly, you can find this podcast on Twitter at the film stage show and, uh, also feel free to email us any questions, comments, or concerns, podcast at the film You can also become patrons of this podcast by visiting patreon.com slash the film stage show for as little as $1 an episode. You get access to our private Slack channel and a first crack at all of our raffles and other fun stuff. So on that note, just remember if the horizon's in the middle, it's boring as shit.